right, happy Monday. We are just kicking off the week and we are kicking off the week with a special episode of Learning Tech Talks where again, we are exploring the landscape of learning technology, cutting through the fluff and nonsense and getting down to the things that really matter most. Uh, today, I am joined by Joel Hellermark and he's from Santa Labs. And we're gonna be talking about a lot of different stuff. If you haven't seen the post, we're gonna get into automation, AI, but we're gonna do it from a very practical standpoint and on a topic that is gonna hit home for a lot of people in learning and development, which is this whole digital content development and delivery and all sorts of stuff. So we've got a fun one planned, but before we get into it, we gotta, we gotta get everybody excited and involved in this. So we're gonna do the participative part, although the whole thing should be part, participative that's a tough one to say so as we're getting rolling and as people start joining if you would comment and share where you are today and let's start with you joel where are you today i'm in stockholm studio uh, stockholm sweden in a recording studio yeah you're, you're in a legit recording studio which i think i said this before we went live you may be the first guest that has come in with you got the headphones you got the mic you're you're in there's like a glass screen on the other side I, i'm feeling a little bit intimidated to be honest I, I don't think i quite live up to your your studio at this point <laughs> <laughs> we have a couple of good friends just next door we uh that that are artists that so we were able to to rent theirs wow okay well because i think i was doing a podcast with you and and we recorded in the studio so you have it's not like you you have it right there on site. I think it's amazing. All right, well, anyway, so I'm in Waukesha, Wisconsin. Like, like usual, it is going to be a gorgeous day today. I'm excited to send my kids outside. <laughs> but let's move on to the next one. The next question, again, has nothing to do with the topic at hand. I am curious to hear what you have, and everybody, you can participate in this one as well. But Joel, Think back, thinking back to your childhood, what was a food you did not like as a kid that everybody said, oh, when you get older, you'll like it, that to this day, you still do not like? Uh, I'm a bit embarrassed, but actually onion. Onions? Some, yeah, I still can't eat onions. You still, not even like grilled or sauteed, just no matter what. Like, is it no. something that you can taste if it's in something too? Uh, yes, very clearly. Really? Yeah. Please don't feed me onions, Christopher. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I'll remember that. So if we ever meet, I'll make sure that we, we don't sneak onions in anything. Or do, do you ever have to ask? Like if you're at a restaurant, will you ask, hey, are there onions in this? Is it that bad? Um, yeah, it is that bad, actually. Okay. Okay. So you really And I, I'll, I'll smell if there are onions in the room. <laughs> Okay, so it's it's legit. Like you can't even really be. Or you don't even like the presence of onions. It's not even just the taste. You okay, like no, the it's not that bad. It's not that okay. bad. And then I can see an onion and be comfortable. Okay. <laughs> you don't have an onion phobia or anything. No, like that. no, no, no. Okay, good. All right. Well, now I know more about you. And while you aren't afraid of onions, definitely not something you would like to see in your food. Okay, perfect. All right. Well, so for me, um, there's a there's a handful of them. But one that I still, similar to you, I have the same reaction. Coconut. Coconut really? is, oh, uh-uh. I can, I can taste it if it's in something. And it's a mix of a taste and a texture thing. If but it's so good. Oh, what? No, 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 no. <laughs> see, see, I feel the same way about onions. As a kid, I didn't like onions. And now I love onions. I'll, I'll eat 
raw onions. But coconut, no way. I can't do it. It's got that like gritty to you, you you like coconut. I love coconuts. Yeah, I do Really? actually. Okay. Yeah. Like coconut water too, like coconut flavored things. Yeah, I might have uh, a coconut water a day on average. <laughs> oh, I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. There's just no way. Okay. See, now we know. So we'll have to figure out when we meet, you know, we'll have to find a restaurant that doesn't serve onions or coconut, or at least serves them distinctively. So we don't, you know, our, our foods don't touch. We'll just make sure of that. Yeah, that's a tough task. <laughs> All right. Well, so let's, let's move on to the, the task at hand here. So you're, you're leading Santa labs, which for people who may be new to the space, it's, it's a pretty cool technology, uh, based on my, the, my exploration of it. But one of the things before we even talk about that itself, I'm just interested a little bit more in your background. How did you, is this something that as a kid, you knew that you wanted to lead a learning technology company back when you were realizing how much you hated onions or how did you, how did you get on this journey to where you are today? I think it all, all started a lot with first my personal experience. So I was a, a big fan of autodidacticism, just teaching myself things as a kid and um, started with software engineering when I was uh, 13, I found these online courses. Andrew Eng had started uh, publishing the first few Stanford courses online and so on and, and learned a lot from, from that. So I'm very much a, a result of kind of the democratization of, of world-class education. But then I think another thing that influenced me a lot was uh, um, the readings from Buckminster Fuller. And Buckminster Fuller would have this notion of, of meta problems in that meta problems are problems that if we solve them, they have cascade effects and everything else. And he, he argued that learning might be one of the world's most or the world's most important problem in that if we can radically improve how the world learns, that has cascade effects in every single area of human achievement that, that we, we care about. Um, and I, that kind of notion st uh, stuck with me and, um, and I've been obsessed ever since around how can we improve learning. And I founded a video recommendation company prior to, to Sana and um, had to dabbled in, in machine learning. And, and ultimately, as we started Sana, it was about how can we, know, we apply machine learning to make human learning significantly more personalized and, and, and engaging. So as, okay. as many things do, it, it very much uh, started in, in, in my childhood. Okay. All right. So it did, it did go back. You didn't know exactly what it looked like, but you knew, you know what I, yeah. Cause that's what I was going to ask. What was there some specific thing or that happened where you just went, we, we got to fix this. I mean, it sounds like you were thinking of this macro problem and then you just, we're on a bit of a journey to, to get where you are now. I think what I've been surprised by in some cases is a few things that are proven to really work that aren't widely established yet. And uh, I think there might be a few gaps in some cases between what's proven in kind of academia and what ultimately gets brought to, to all of our learning products. And you have these kind of research experiments where they don't really have consumer-grade products, but uh, they're based on very strong uh, research ideas that prove proved to be true. And then you might have consumer products which aren't really based on, 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 <laughs> on that learning. <laughs> and, and I think uh, uh, it was ultimately what kind of drove me a lot in the beginning was also how can we take these things that are actually proven to work and radically improve learning 
into consumer grade products. And, and that's what you can see in the Sana team today. You have some of the world's best designers, but also some of the best um, scientists and uh, and uh, machine learning engineers. And I really believe in that combination. If, if you can combine best practices from these different disciplines, I think uh, that's where the best products get made. Okay. Well, and that's what I was going to ask as a follow-up question, because I agree with you. I think there is this there can sometimes be this big disconnect between what we know from academic research and what we can find through through the science and then the practical application and integration of this kind of stuff. And there's this huge crevasse sometimes in between where things don't always make the jump or they make the jump, but it's not quite what we thought. So I was curious, as you were as you've been pulling this together and bridging that gap, have there been any things that have jumped out that You've really obviously bringing those two together is an important component, but have there been yeah. any other things that you say this really is how you get to that sweet spot? Um, I think, yeah, the combination of world class design, machine learning, and, and technology is obviously one, but I think the second one is probably change management. So if you if you look at our our uh, business development team, it's it's made up of people who, who previously might have led some of the largest AI deployments uh, globally and, and so on. And their ex- expertise is, is not simply just in selling our products, but it's consulting a, a company that's going through a journey from kind of a legacy way of, of, of distributing learning to this becoming a, a key strategic imperative that they radically want to improve how, how they deliver learning and make that a much more personalized and engaging experience. And, and so that's also how we've structured the team and that okay. I think uh, um, it's, it's as much about kind of the adoption uh, as it is about the product in, in itself. Okay. Well, and it's interesting you say that because I think that that's where sometimes we we miss things. There's these great ideas, but because of the way we approach the change or the the actual implementation, great ideas get blamed for you know failure when really the failure fell apart. So interesting that your your focus you applied that to the sales teams having a different skill set than a traditional than a traditional sales team, which would be, hey, have you sold products? Have you done all this? Where really it's, well, no, we're looking to make a transformation. So we need people who understand what that transformation is, who can, can almost consult and help people understand what that is. So they're not just buying a product, they're they're being supported through that. Indeed. And I think that's increasingly what what companies are looking for as well. It's, it's ultimately, it's a partnership throughout this, uh, throughout this journey more than it is just buying kind of an off-the-shelf product. Yeah. Well, for, for good reasons too, in the sense that, I mean, a lot of times these are, these are investments you're making into your work. And that's not something that you simply sign an SOW and say, perfect, we're done. These, these things take time. So I think what I've seen in, in my conversations with vendors over the years is the ones who get that and who really are making the time and investment into saying, this is a partnership between us and your organization. Those are the ones that really succeed versus the ones that, hey, the goal is to get you to buy our product and then you know, we'll move on. Indeed. <laughs> All right, so let's transition this one because I am curious how you describe so you're the ceo of santa labs but when you go up to somebody and talk to somebody or if somebody's new in the space and they say i've heard of it how do you explain it to people how do you describe it 
Essentially, SANA is a personalized learning platform, and the core thesis is how can we move learning from something that's one size fits all to something that's completely personalized based on your individual knowledge level, based on your skill gaps, uh, and uh, and based on ultimately how, how you learn. Um, and as part of that personalized learning platform, you have, uh, of course, embedded analytics. So you can get unparalleled insights into what are the skills and what are the skill gaps of my, my organization. You have an authoring tool that makes the authoring process significantly more productive by making it collaborative and uh, making it AI-assisted. Um, and then... Um, and then ultimately, uh, this assures that end to end, you can deliver a learning experience that's much more relevant, uh, that is much more data driven, uh, and that ultimately gets you to the results you want uh, uh, twice as fast. Okay. All right. So it's, and the thing is, as I've dug into it a little bit more, there's a fair amount of complexity behind what this is. And the reason I ask is, and this is the part I think we'll unpack and spend some time talking about is, Saying you're a personalized learning platform in today's market, <laughs> especially on the practitioner side, is can be really confusing because there's a Indeed. lot of things out there that are saying, yeah, we're a personalized learning platform too. And that can mean a lot of different things. That can, I mean, SharePoint can be a personalized learning platform, a terrible one, but it can be <laughs> in theory, if you depending on how you're framing it up. So, you know, as you as you were looking at this, and this was one of the things that was part of my learnings as I got to know more about what you were doing is this in many ways is changing the whole approach to digital content. Is that fair? Kind of the way it's designed, the way it's developed, the way it's delivered, the way it's measured. It's really that digital content piece and how are you doing that? and using technology to improve not only the experience, but the way you design it, the way you develop it, all that stuff. Is that fair? That That's fair. And I, and I think um, um, there there's this quote by Simon Brown from, from Novartis that the greatest challenge in corporate learning is getting the right content in the right way to the right person at the right time. And I think that encapsulates it's, it's, it really well from a delivery perspective. And if you can make much more personalized and, and targeted, we can ultimately address that challenge. But there's also another set of, of challenges as we produce this content in um, how can we improve the quality of the content by uh, developing it uh, in a much more data-driven way? So yeah. as soon as the product uh, or the course goes live, we'll start collecting data around uh, are questions too easy or too difficult, how are lessons uh, rated, what comments are we getting, and so on. And this ultimately then um, gives us opportunities to improve that, the content based on that data in an iterative fashion. So we're moving from sort of producing this course, sending it out, and then it's done, to working iteratively uh, with, uh, with, with the content. I think another quite interesting example is when you combine the search with content development. So we can find 
uh, Sana has an embedded uh, neural search, uh, we call it. So in Sana, you can ask questions to Sana in the same way you would ask questions to a colleague. You could ask Sana, what's the difference between machine learning and deep learning or something that's very specific to, to your company? And then uh, if the query was, was, was not answered, or you can also see um, the, the queries that are asked the most, that can also drive, these are probably areas that we should develop more content. Okay. Um, so ultimately, how can we drive a much more data-driven process for content development that makes sure that we get higher utilization and, and, and also invest in the right areas? Okay. So on that search one, follow-up question to that, is, is the search capability when we're looking at that, obviously, yes, it's providing some great data. It's providing some great data around what are people actually curious about? And I think curiosity is a fascinating thing to dig into because if you can start to understand where the workforce's curiosity is, to your point, you can start focusing your attention on the things that matter most to them, which really is what we're here to do. On top of that, is it also then querying to see, do we have content on this at this point so that it can actually, if people have this question, instead of just documenting, okay, they're asking these questions, but actually then connecting the dots? That's done automatically um, okay. by analyzing the natural language. So. Uh, Sana, can you take the query that you have, and then it looks through all of the content, and then it, it, it finds uh, okay. the paragraph that with the highest likelihood has the answer to that. So that's another point around like increasing the utilization, because now you can harness the power of your knowledge base in, in whole new ways. Um, in that you can ask questions and interact with your educational content in the same way you would ask questions to a tutor, for example. Okay. So it can, it has, and, and I think what we're talking about now is one of the challenges that I think sometimes we miss with traditional styles of content development, which is two things that you brought up. One, it's a, we've created it and then we're done. We put it on a shelf and that's kind of the end of it, which then we end up in this situation where we have digital platforms filled with digital garbage that have accumulated over the years because we, we built it and we kind of set it on a shelf. But to that other point, a lot of that stuff is developed in almost in its own insulated box. We don't really know what's in it. We don't really know what people are doing with it. It just was kind of there and it just exists. And the problem with that is you miss out on all of the, you really do miss out on all of the kind of knowledge management component of that. Because now all yeah. this content, you spent all this time and energy creating, lots of time, lots of time and money on this. And it just sits somewhere. And again, nobody really ever can find it. And it's not necessarily because it's bad, but people don't know what's in there. Heck, a designer leaves, nobody on your team might even know what's in there. Well, I've, all, I've been in those conversations where you go, who made this course? Oh, Bill and Bill left. What's in it? I have no idea. Do we exactly. need it? I'm not really sure. <laughs> And I think that goes back to the, the the personalization and kind of the adaptive learning aspects as as well. Ultimately, what we'd like is for for a learner to be able to just select what skills they want to learn, uh, or what role they have, and then automatically get the the skills that they should should learn. Take a placement test based on the outcome of this placement test. Get a personalized learning path that in real time adapts to exactly what 
what they know, exactly what, 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 what they're struggling with, and then provides them with targeted nudges over time that makes sure that this information is not only mastered, but equally retained and applied. So I think that's the holy grail. And if we could combine this kind of adaptive learning technologies with this course libraries, we can ultimately make sure that this content that gets delivered in the in the right way to the right person at the right time and increase the, the utilization of the contents that uh, that we've developed as well. So that's something that that I think we are realizing now with a lot of uh, the partners that we have. We managed to uh, do upskilling for one partner 59% faster by providing this okay. significantly more targeted way of, of learning. Okay. Well, and I, I look back at, oh, I remember when adaptive, the term adaptive learning first came out, which by the way, that gets thrown around a lot. And I, and that's where I want to dig into some of the tech because I've seen adaptive learning platform and I don't know that I'd really call it adaptive. It's more the, you looked at this and it's, it's meta tagging and that's about yeah. the extent of it. And what we're talking about is not simple basic recommendations based on other things that you've done. We're talking about truly understanding where you are as an individual and dynamically shifting the pathway based on what you know and what your knowledge and skills are. So I want to make that clarification because I do exactly. hear adaptive tossed around a lot and not all adaptive is created equal. I, I love that sentence. <laughs> <laughs> That's a new tagline for us. Not all adaptive is good. Not all adaptive. But on uh, this space, I think one of the things, you know, we were talking about this a little bit before we went live in the fact that I, I, to me, when I look at content, and this is where I, I see arguments on both sides of this, and I feel like there's a balance in between. I see this, some parts of, the, of our industry focus on screaming at content saying, hey, content's not how people learn. We need to go beyond content. Content isn't the end game. And I would say, yes, I agree with that. I agree with the fact that that's not all there is. However, sometimes where I feel that gets off target is this idea that we should just abandon content. People don't yeah. need content. They just need to learn through performance support. They just need to learn by doing. And I, I don't agree with that side of it. Now, I think there's the other side where we've way over indexed on content and we think if we get content perfect, magically the world will be solved. No, learning is a big complicated equation, but I think one of the things that you've talked about in getting content right is if we get content right, we can do it faster, more effectively, more efficiently with bigger impact, which actually frees us up to spend time on some of these other parts that really can dramatically impact things as well. Exactly. And I think we will be able to expect much more of content moving forward yes. uh, as well in, in as we evolve what, what tools we use to produce this content, we can expect those experiences to become significantly more meaningful um, as, as well. And we're seeing that in a lot of the explorations that, that we're doing in evolving the types of content and, and how it's created, it, it can encapsulate uh, and deliver a much more human 
uh, way than sitting watching uh, eight, uh, like a course of eight hours and just pure videos with no interaction or uh, purely text based. I think there's ultimately we're going to evolve the content format a lot to be able to get some aspects of that experiential learning into the content development piece, but ultimately be able to do the content development piece significantly more productive as, as well yes. so you can learn everything you need to learn about the specific uh, product in in half the time and then go out sell it uh in 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 <laughs> and, and and that and ultimately get the experience and and yeah. that's uh, i think uh, uh both will be able to uh, reduce the time spent on these basic uh, concepts but also make that experience much more meaningful well, what's, what's interesting about you bringing this up, and actually one of the questions that came in on YouTube, which I love the name Retro Jingles. So <laughs> I love that. Sure who it is, but that's an amazing name. And I think one of the things that's been interesting, the question was how, and I think what we're getting at is how are you differentiating between learning content and non-learning content? And I'll, I'll, I'll take my pass at this, but then I'm also you're curious, your thoughts on this is that Historically, I think we've we've fought this battle pretty hard for some of the reasons that we're talking about, which is, you know, we've had to really fight against, well, is that really learning content? Is that not learning content? Because historically, we've invested a ton of time and money and effort into developing learning content with very little knowledge of whether it did anything, whether it didn't, did people find it valuable? And so I think one of the challenges that's presented is that we've had to become almost very defensive of what we will get involved with from a content standpoint, because yeah. we're, we're trying to manage resources and time and all this stuff. I think some of these innovations in content development actually allow us to say, well, let's not worry so much about does this fall into the learning content box? Because if we can democratize the creation and improve the creation of it, Hey, to your point of this knowledge base, maybe it's not a formal learning thing in our definition of there's learning outcomes and we've got all this other stuff, but maybe it's meaningful content that should be created so it can sit in a knowledge base so somebody can find it at some point. But I think exactly. this democratization and technology actually is now enabling us to include some of this stuff that we may have shied away from because it was too resource intensive or we didn't have time or capacity to do it. I think that that's exactly right and uh, and uh, ult ultimately um learning uh, i think the the learning content one one big difference that we're seeing in in some aspects is uh i mean a big part of of uh, what sana also helps you do is to actually learn this content and and master it and retain it and uh, uh, there might be some information where where that's not as critical that you could equally present in in any other format. But where where it really becomes learning content is when you want someone to actually kind of learn and and master and, and retain that information. And 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 that's where platforms like this are are the most supportive, I guess. Okay. Well, and I think that's that's where I think there's there is a distinguishment between the two. But I think what this technology allows us to do is not have to say, well, we only deal in one. We only no, deal exactly. in this side of the house. It's like, well, we can deal in all of it. We just design differently and use the technology differently. But the technology then allows us because there may be something that we discover that we thought wasn't really learning content that turns out the organization really actually needs it. And we go, we probably should have some more formal 
learning around this because clearly it's a resource people are pulling on a lot. Exactly. Okay. So then I am curious. So Vinay asked this question. We'll, we'll, we'll spend a little bit of time here, but how are you seeing technologies like this changing the way content creation is moving? And, I, and I've definitely got a clear take on this, but I think what we're getting at is this balance of internal content creation. So actually designing and developing our own content versus curating from external sources, pulling in from other ways. I'm curious, one, what you're seeing with folks that you're working with, but also just even maybe your personal take on where that's going. Of course. I think what we're seeing is that the approach to take completely kind of generalized course libraries are, are not being very successful because okay. if you're joining SANA, you want to learn SANA's way of doing leadership. Um, uh, but then those libraries work quite well for more generalized concepts like learning uh, Excel, for example. Uh, but where the power I think really lies is in this combination where you can take very high quality uh, sample courses and, and templates uh, from some of the world's uh, experts in, in different uh, domains and then combine that with your internal uh, resources. So that's a bet we're making in that kind of you want the masterclass for enterprise that you can uh, combine with, with your own uh, with your own company specific uh, content. And I think the approaches we've seen uh, um, that have been the most effective are when they can very effectively uh, take this content, but then make it their own so that uh, it, it feels company specific and it feels like I'm getting the SANA way of, of doing things. Uh, but but, but what, what have you seen? I would say we're, we're probably likely very aligned in our thinking on this one. I, I think historically you, you see the two extreme camps. I find myself a lot of times making these comparisons of this spectrum where I've seen organizations where they have to recreate everything. No, we have to recreate everything. And I look at that and go, that's not really a good use of anybody's time and resources because some of this stuff is not, as much as you'd like to think it's different in your org, it's actually not. There is, to your point though, that nuance, and I think this is where it swings the other way, is when orgs go, well, every, there's nothing new, there's nothing unique, so let's just buy something off the shelf and, and just leave it, and, and we'll just expect people to... And then that's missing the whole, well, how do you contextualize this to our organization? How do you contextualize this to our values or the way we operate? I think the other thing that sometimes is missing from that just open-ended stuff, the, all the things you talked about in terms of the data, are people using it? How are people actually moving through it? How is it being optimized? You're not going to find that in those areas, or at least I haven't come across off the shelf content that has the kind of capabilities we've been talking about here. So to me, I, I do find it, it's that similar augmentation of the two and bringing the two together to say, you don't need to recreate the core components of content. I, I would say you rarely, unless it's truly very unique to your organization, need to yeah. recreate the rare, the, the building blocks of the content. But where you can come in is then layering that together and actually threading that into a meaningful experience that says, hey, here's this core content, but here's how we contextualize it and tie it to what you're doing or how we do things for our organization. Yeah. So I think it's a mix. Now, my question is then, <laughs> how is that working with the people who are developing, say, with, with SANA, where they're 
where they're doing this because there can be a tendency to say, well, we have to create from scratch, but you're saying, no, bring these two together. And so I'm assuming exactly. that's a capability you're, you're enabling. Exactly. So with Sana, you get uh, a set of, of templates that, that you can start with that, uh, that we've developed with some of the world experts in, in different domains. But you can also take those templates and then and, and customize them to your specific needs, as well as embed any type of content that you might have from, from third-party uh, resources. Uh, but this templating is, is something we invest uh, a lot in because, uh, uh, because we, we, we ultimately we want you to be able to, to start from best-in-class content, but then make that content in, into, into your own. Uh, so that's something that's kind of native in, 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 in the product. But then, of course, you can also embed any type of content that you might find from, from uh, third-party uh, resources. And, and that's also how we've developed the, uh, our, our internal uh, learning at Sana and, and how I like to learn. So I might put together a leadership course, which is very specific around the principles and the values that we have at Sana, but then I might have something else that is highly relevant for, for uh, from another uh, author that's relevant to that, and then I can embed that into the learning experience. So there you get the best of two worlds, where you get it completely contextualized, um, but then you can also harness all of the world class content that's that's out there. Okay. Now there's two directions I want to go from <laughs> where we are right now. And I'm and I'm gonna kind of go. Let's go. Let's go right with this one first, which is what we're talking about. Though is a fundamental shift in really the way we approach content development. I mean, there's there's some mindset shift. There's some physical operational shifts that you have to make to do this. Because if you're if you're an organization that's been a content shop and you've been developing things from scratch, now we're talking about this. There's a mix of curation skills that you're going to need to bring in. How do you not just create everything from the ground up? How do you bring that in in a meaningful way? While at the same time, not completely abandoning this idea of, well, there's still learning architecture that has to happen. So I have to imagine when you work with some of these orgs, that has to be a challenge that they have to overcome, whether it's with their design teams or even just their own thinking. So how, how are organizations tackling that? Because that can be perceived as a threat because it's a change. It's a change to what you've done and change is often perceived as a threat. Of course. And, and I think ultimately it's, it's an evolution as, as well. It's, um, the the start experiencing like this um, this this new way of, of developing uh, content and uh, and uh, see see the upside and then um, keep keep investing in it and, and changing. So I guess that's the one of the the core core um, aspects around the change management. But another uh, thing I found very interesting is just the concept around developing adaptive courses. So this is something that can feel quite intimidating, especially if you have kind of the old school adaptive where you had to specify every single step. <laughs> if they do X, then do Y and so on. And then you're all of a sudden feels like it's going to take 10X the time to produce this content. Yes. If you've ever created a branching anything, the thought of creating adaptive learning can very quickly feel like, no way, this is going to take forever. Exactly. And uh, if you look at the next generation of tools, what um, such as 
Asana, what you're able to do is all of this essentially gets done in the background. So what you focus on is producing the content and you don't change too much around how you might be producing this content. But in the background, the system is analyzing how questions relate to different lessons. And if you and then if you identify that a user has struggled with this set of questions, selecting this set of distractors, you can very specifically then find the exact paragraph video, the element that's most effectively going to be able to address that specific knowledge gap and then serve that up to them. And as an author, you haven't changed much in how you actually produce this course. Uh, you might have added a few more questions to make sure that you had content. Uh, but as a learner, you get an entirely adaptive experience based on exactly what, what, what you need. And I think that's the shift that we're seeing now, where the technology is increasingly in the background, solving a lot of these workflows automatically, allowing us to get a superior learner experience without having to invest more in the authoring process. Okay. Well, and that's, I really appreciated the way you kind of unpacked that because I think it's important, especially I think of, uh, there's a lot of designers that, that watch this show and it can feel, I've been there, I've developed courses. And like I said, the thought of developing an adaptive course in, we won't mention an authoring tool, but in a traditional authoring tool, if you've ever done it with variables and triggers and, and different pathways and storylines and, and things like that, it it can feel like an absolute monster. And I think this naturally leads into this technology side of things where technology is actually allowing this stuff to happen without all the effort that used to have to go into it. And this is where I think we can say content development is being reimagined in the sense that it is. Things that we used to go, you can't do that. It was too time intensive or resource intensive or we just would have had to spend way too much time on this. That's not true really anymore. And technology is automating much of that. Exactly. And uh, and also assisting the process. Uh, there was these two schools of, of thought uh, back in the 80s where uh, you had kind of uh, artificial intelligence and then you had the augmented intelligence uh, schools and uh, the augmented intelligence schools they were ultimately the ones that kind of developed the macintosh and and, and so on and they were around this notion of how can we um, build bicycles for the mind so what does building a bicycle for the mind the, the concept was that humans are actually from an energy efficiency point of view uh, there was a list and they came out like 20th uh, among animals. Um, and then uh, the, the, the author of this was, was very clever. So, so he asked like, what's, uh, uh, what's the energy efficiency of a human on a bicycle? Because ultimately uh, humans were tool builders. And then we came out first. And this was very interesting because it ultimately spoke to that uh, hum as humans were, were tool, tool builders. And uh, the concept was how can we develop tools for the mind? So ultimately enable if we can, uh, or imagine if we can develop bicycles for, for authors uh, that allows them to produce 10 times the amount of, of content or 10 times the quality of the content in less time by augmenting them and, 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 and automating and doing a lot of these things in the, in, in the background. So I think that school, uh, school of thought is, is very intriguing. Well, no, and it's, it's a really, I'm laughing about it because I, while the bicycle, I'm actually picturing content development. I'm picturing Iron Man. 
Iron Man. Okay. Just right. I think of Iron Man, where as a person, you're limited in your strength and your capacity, all this stuff. You put on this Iron Man suit, and suddenly, now to your point, you're able to move faster, do things more powerfully, be fly. I mean, again, I haven't watched Iron Man in forever. But the point is, (laughs) it's not taking away your unique capability and your skills. It's just accelerating and strengthening them. And I think that's where artificial intelligence done right is doing exactly that. It's not saying you're no longer valuable. What you're doing, we're just gonna automate what you do. No, it's saying we're removing these barriers to the fact that you weren't ever able. I have never in my entire career worked with an organization that says, we've created all the content that our organization needs. We're bored. We, we just, we've managed to get to it all ever, not only because is it changing, but there's just too much. And I think that's yeah. where what this is allowing us to do is say, now we can actually get to that point potentially and create a superior experience. And provide very targeted approaches for, yes. for how to improve this content. So you come to your dashboard, you see exactly which lessons need improvement. You get suggestions for how to improve those lessons. Uh, you go to a question. A lot of learners seem to be confused with this question. Sana says to you that it might be because there's a double negative. Consider replacing the double negative. Here's a suggestion for how to change the question. You do that in a single tap. So it's really integrating in, into the workflow and making that entirely entire workflow much more 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 productive okay you know it's interesting there was a research study that i was reading i don't know it was a little while ago and i think this is where getting the ai part right is is what you just talked about which is humans still need to stay in the loop they still need to be part of that because of the unique components we bring to it and where i'm seeing some of this stuff happening is not that you just hand over your content to the machine and just let it do its thing and hope it gets it right. But more so that it's doing the example you did where it's finding some of this stuff and saying, Hey, I identified this. Is this something you want to change? Is this something that could be improved so that you still have a critical role in this, but you're not spending all your time trying to find every single thing that you could do differently because there's just no way There's no way you can keep up with it. And I think this is where the bicycle example or the Ironman example is perfect in that it's actually allowing us to be more efficient and effective while still maintaining the value that we bring. 100%. And uh, and that's that's ultimately, I think, going to be for the long run the the approach that that will win in in giving, empowering every single author with the power of 100% analysts that essentially are constantly analyzing the content, how they can improve the content, and providing them with suggestions of, of how they can improve it. Um, and maybe even doing that before they hit publish, taking yeah. all of the best practices from the content that is already out there and getting every single author to produce content at the the level of the best course they've ever published. And I think that's very, very, very powerful as, as well, where you can provide pedagogical nudges as you are producing this content uh, to make sh- to raise the, the bar generally. Well, it's like having a team of copywriters or like you said, analysts giving you real-time feedback along the way. So instead of going, I, I, you know, I got feedback from some SMEs and I, I did my best to take a look at it and I hope we hit the mark. There's, it's just, it's again, it's just accelerating the capability of what you can do. 
And you get those in real time then as as well. So you don't have to wait for it, but as you're authoring, you can get this in real time. You don't have to push it out of your LMS and then wait, you know, for three years for somebody to take the course to tell you that, hey, this course is actually not really that great. (laughs) Okay. So with that one, I'm also curious, you know, Matthias asked a good question and I'm curious how, because this is a shift. Honestly, what we're talking about is a completely different way of thinking about content development. It's a different way of thinking about design. It's a different way of thinking about operations. So how are, what are some of the things you've done that have helped, like what's helping people move along this continuum and what different types of skills? We said it's very similar to the way we've designed content in the past. But there are some unique differences because you did say, you know, you might be asking more questions. You might be thinking a little bit differently. What are some of those shifts people need to make and what's the best way to, to make those shifts? There are a few best practices for adaptive content, such as make the content modular, uh, so that you can ultimately adapt it. If lessons are very intertwined, it might be difficult to just recommend one lesson, for example. Uh, you might want to in- increase the volume of, of questions so that you can also assess the, the learning and then provide targeted recommendations based on that. But but generally, I think it's, it's much of the best practices that we all we have for for learning. So I think yeah, there there actually isn't a huge delta in, in the knowledge uh, the the knowledge that you need. It might shift a bit how we produce the content in yeah. uh, that the flow is much more continuous. In that now it's quite finite. In that we we get a request to develop content in this specific area, produce that content, send it out, move out. Uh, move over to another area. But if you have this continuous stream of data in that we need more content here, we need to improve this content and, and so on, um, that process becomes much more continuous. But generally I would say it's not that many new skills, but you just have to get started because now it's, uh, for many it, it, it looks inti- intimidating, but when they realize is that we can as easily produce content in an adaptive format as in the format we're uh, currently producing in, maybe it's even smoother, um, but we can get uh, have learners go through the content in, in half the time, remember it three times longer, and uh, ultimately stay more engaged. As soon as you kind of get to that aha moment, uh, there's no way back. So the, yeah. the, the challenge is getting to that aha moment as quickly as possible, <laughs> I guess. Well, it's, it is funny because I, I, I agree with you on the sense that once you've seen this, once you've been in this space, you don't look back and go, I really wish we could do things the way we used to do. You just don't because when you actually, once to your point, the aha moment of, whoa, this is all the things that we've been talking about forever about education. I mean, we've been talking about this forever around learning. Wouldn't it be great if we could deliver people exactly what they need and they would remember it and they would be more effective and we'd be able to actually know and then continually adapt it. Nobody's, we've been wanting to do that for a long time and this is what's really unlocking the potential to be able to do it. I think the big, what we're talking about though, in terms of that shift, a lot of these are mindset shifts. Yeah. And the big one you hit on there is this idea of continuous, it's a continuous thing. It's not done. 
because you're constantly iterating and evolving and I'm not going to use, I know boss is watching, so I, I won't throw the word agile out there because that that's, that's not the point, but that's really this different thing, which actually is true of, I think where our industry is going in general, yeah. because I even get a lot of questions now of, well, what technology should we buy to future proof our organization? Like there, there's not an answer to that question because where we're going, this is a constant shift. We're constantly evolving and it's never done. Even if you start something, there's going to be the next generation of it or the next iteration of it. hundred percent. Okay. So let me, let me also kind of, so this gets back to the other one that I was going to get to. And I told you, I'll, I'll always eventually come back to it. One of the challenges that sometimes I hear when it comes to, to new design tools for designing content is that as a designer, it can feel like it's squelching your creativity. You're limited because I don't have the ability to just, I don't have a blank canvas anymore. I'm being limited to a certain way of designing or a certain way of doing this or everything always looks the same. How do you tackle that one? Cause that's, that's a challenge. I have my own take on, on that, but I'm curious, how are people getting around that or how are they navigating those territories? So it doesn't just feel like everything's exactly the same. I, I think almost in, in more cases, what, what we come across is that you are overwhelmed in that if you are letting the author make every single decision and the product is not making some of those decisions for you, you're overwhelmed by, by choices. Um, and that's that can often be a bigger challenge. Uh, and what I think the best products do is that they create these extremely intuitive experiences that make it hard for you to fail. So whatever you do, this content is going to be world class. You can't mess it, mess it up. I think that's ultimately <laughs> the type of, of tool that you want more, where they made some very thoughtful decisions on how to simplify this tool to give you much more power, but without inundating you with with options and from a design perspective that's something that that we try to think a lot about in that okay. how, how how can we make the tool sufficiently powerful without overwhelming uh, uh overwhelming and uh, like a few tools i think that have done that very well is excel for example, where you can start off very simple, but then go very deep. Um, and I think that that's the, the balance you want to strike in that you can get started very simply, but then you can produce extremely uh, kind of uh, uh, innovative uh, content as well. But what, what, what's, what's your perspective on it, having, having seen yeah. it firsthand? You know, it, I'm going back to my spectrum thing, right? I'm going back to the spectrum thing. In that, I think one of the things you brought up that is is really powerful is that I think sometimes we don't realize decision fatigue. Decision fatigue is a real thing, and when decision fatigue kicks in, it actually reduces the quality of your output because you're so overwhelmed trying to make decisions and get everything perfect, you you end up not getting anything done very well. And I think sometimes this desire to say, well, but we want total autonomy over the content development experience, to me, I would challenge that and say, no, you don't actually, because if you do, what you produce will not be of the utmost quality because by the time you make all the different decisions that you need to make, 
you're not actually making the best decisions anymore. And so to that standpoint, I look at it and say, you, you actually, and, and what you're talking about is you're guaranteed a positive outcome. <laughs> AI is helping make sure what you deliver is a positive outcome. And really all you need to do then is focus on the most important decisions, which again, it's a mindset thing. You can look at that as, oh, this is squelching my creative freedom. Or you can look at that and say, well, this is actually optimizing my decision-making and allowing me to make sure that whatever I do, I'm coming out on the winning end. To me, that's an awesome outcome to be shooting towards. And the other thing that I think is really important that a lot of times people don't always take into consideration is it's freeing up time for you to focus your creativity on other things. And I think that's one of the things that I know I've been working with with my teams over the years to say, I don't want all of your decision-making and creativity spent on designing content. I want a large majority of it on that, but I also want you thinking about your innovation, your development, your own creative, how do we change experiential learning, things like that. If you're bogged down in all the 10 million decisions on what does this experience look like, you don't have anything left to give to this other stuff. So to me, that's where I get really excited about it because yes, maybe it can result in you producing more or it may result in you diversifying your portfolio and focusing in other areas and using your creativity in ways you didn't have capacity to do before. Exactly. And and uh, and ultimately creating a much more consistent experience for for the learners as as well, which are on the other side. And if if um, if every single kind of interaction is bespoke, and you're not creating this kind of continuous consistent experience, and that's something that I think we're a bit getting lost in with the LXP idea, is that the systems are aggregating content without creating consistent experiences. So I'm getting thrown away across the entire world of uh, everything from a video <laughs> over here, a course here I have to sign in into, an article over here. And it's not creating this very consistent experience. And that's ultimately inhibiting my flow. Uh, and that's something that we found to be so important for the learner experience. And we did even try to, to go down and optimize this on a very detailed level. So we found that learners that have on average 70% um, probability of answering the questions correctly, they stay the most engaged. Because it's that Goldilocksian difficulty of neither too hard or too easy. And if you, the more kind of you bring this into one system where you can create a consistent ex experience, the more you can also kind of optimize that, that state of, of flow. Yeah. Well, and what's really funny about that, <laughs> it's a really important point because going back to this, sometimes we can get too caught up in what we think is really cool and important that we we forget the fact that we're not here to do what we think is cool and important. We're here to actually meet the needs of the workforce. And I don't think in my history of ever, I've ever talked to an employee that said, you know what I could use more of? Inconsistency in things. I would love a lot more inconsistency and having to relearn and try and figure things out every single time I try and do things. In fact, people get really annoyed when they feel like, oh, and this is another thing even simple things sometimes we overlook. So I think sometimes when we when we run into that wall of, ah, it's squelching my creative freedom, 
we need to say, well, but at whose expense is that creative freedom coming at? Because if at the end of the day, that creative freedom is making a worse user experience for your end users, is creating inconsistency, is leading them not to actually engage in what they ultimately, what you're producing, then is it really getting you what you want? Or is it just more of a, well, I just want to do this. Exactly. So I could, I, I get a little amped up on that one. <laughs> so the last one, cause like I said, I know we're going to run out of time on this, but one thing that I think may be helpful as we think about the ecosystem portion of this, because this can, we can be talking about this and there may be folks who are still on this like, so does this mean we've got like a whole nother ecosystem that we're adding to this or where does, how are organizations fitting this into their existing ecosystem? Because what we talked about before we went live was the goal of this is not to try and create another front door that you're going to be asking your workforce to shift everything they're doing and walk through this, but to say, no, let's find you where you are and then deliver this. So what we're talking about is not creating a completely different end user experience, but integrating a better end user experience into something else. So how does that work? Sun is a, a lot about based on, on around that thesis exactly around how can we drive the learning um, to where the learner's at. So we're, we're increasingly, I think, seeing in the space that companies are, are, are creating new front doors. Uh, in, instead of actually just looking at where where are people walking in today and how can we meet them there and and that's what 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 we think will be extremely powerful now as as we bring sana to the world is how can we bring sana uh, and the nudges that you have in sana and these very targeted recommendations that you have in sana to to slack in microsoft teams and deliver them in a much more targeted uh, targeted way and um, and that that ultimately means if we look at the, the at at the ecosystem, I, I think uh, the LXPs are playing an extremely important role in the aggregation of all of the data, and and we partner with 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 them to make sure that that both the Sana content is visible in there, but but also that that the data gets that gets integrated. Um, but where we think that a, a big portion of 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 the learners will find us is, is actually integrated into the flow of work. They search up a very specific query they might have about the content, they get the exact lesson that they need, they get a nudge. Uh, based on that nudge, they might click it, get more recommendations and, and so on, and use it much more on a continuous basis. So if we look at our usage, we want to ultimately sign up to be something you use you know 10 15 times a day rather than something that that you use once a month when you have a four hours straight okay okay well and the and the term we used on this uh which i liked because i've i've heard this term used in other things but a different application is it's really headless content and and what we mean by that is we're not trying you're not trying to create yet another app or a portal or another thing that people have to compete with to say oh when i need something i need to go to this but instead we're saying let's create this and and this is a trend i i've been saying for a while i think we're going to see the learning technology start to fall further into the background where people don't necessarily know that they're engaging with these different platforms or these tools because it's so seamlessly integrated with what they're already doing. And so it's just becoming something that they do. And I think that's that's the way to go is to say, well, let's give people what they need where they need it. And let's not worry so much 
you know, whether they know that this is the, the Santa portal or the, the whatever front door of our, of our experience. I, I, I'm also extremely inspired by by that vision. And I think ultimately it was um, uh, our, our friends, Amanda Nolan and Laurie Niles, who have kind of guided us towards that and, and making us, us realize, I think, increasingly over time that, that Sana has to be wherever the learners uh, are. So uh, that's two people I, I learn a lot from. Okay, awesome. Well, we're at time. I've got probably 438 other questions that I would dig into, but uh, we, we got to call it. We got to call it. So I'm going to I'm going to close this down. This has been awesome, Joel. I'm so glad we had the chance to talk. Hopefully those of you watching, this is going to get you thinking a little bit differently when it comes to how you're designing content and hopefully also how technology is not really a threat. It's not a threat to what we're doing. In fact, it's just an enabler of allowing us to do things better and produce more of a higher quality product, if anything else. So I appreciate you making the time joining me from your fancy dancy studio all the way <laughs> over in Stockholm. I, I have, I have studio envy at this point, but, um, maybe yeah. some other time, but thanks for joining me. Thanks everybody for tuning in. And I hope you all have a phenomenal week. This was good fun. Thank you.